Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. David Unwin. Dr. Unwin is an award-winning general practitioner or family doctor known for pioneering the low-carb approach in the UK. Through the years, Dr. Unwin has been highly recognized for his work within the field. In 2015, Dr. Unwin was made a UK Royal College of General Practitioners Expert Clinical Advisor for his dedicated efforts within the areas of patient communication and type 2 diabetes. Then, in 2016, Dr. Unwin won the prestigious NHS Innovator of the Year Award for his work with diabetes patients. From 2017 to 2018, his practice saved 57,000 pounds on drugs for type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and other conditions by offering patients a dietary alternative to medications. Also in 2018, Dr. Unwin was named the ninth most influential general practitioner in the UK by GP magazine Pulse. Moreover, he is a clinical expert in diabetes at Fellowship of the UK Royal College of General Practitioners, where he was elected as a fellow back in 2008. Additionally, Dr. Unwin is the medical advisor at the popular low-carb program and is doing his best to spread knowledge about low-carb among doctors, dietitians, and nurses. Dr. Unwin has also written several peer-reviewed papers to strengthen the science behind low-carb diets. Dr. Unwin's work has been covered by BBC, New Scientist, Daily Mail, and the British Medical Journal. Make sure to check out Dr. Unwin's Twitter, where he has over 50,000 followers. On today's episode, we talked to Dr. Unwin about how he became the low-carb GP, how his amazing infographics work, and the work he is doing to train more medical professionals in how to help their patients put diabetes into remission. We talk about how he works with patients, what it's like as the spouse of a person with food addiction and what his experience has been, how living with a person with food addiction has impacted the whole family, that they have adult children and grandchildren, and so much more. Welcome, Dr. Unwin. Dr. Unwin, thank you so much for being here. We're wondering if you would give us just a bit of background as to how you became the low-carb GP. What was your aha moment that this is the path for you? Thank you. Right. So I was 55 years old. I was getting fed up with, so I'm a general practitioner in the north of England, and I was finding that made me weary. I was senior partner of quite a large practice, about nine doctors. I just was generally day-to-day tired, exhausted, and found that I wasn't enjoying it. And so I was planning on retiring age 55, and I'd got various things I thought I would like doing. And then I think most of it was one single patient changed my life. And this was somebody who I'd looked after for many years. She had diabetes, and she came in First of all, she came in unrecognizable, so I didn't even recognize her and tried to send her out of the room. And that was because she'd lost so much weight. And she dressed completely differently. She was very, very smartly dressed. And I tried to say, no, I'm so sorry. I'm expecting Mrs. Jones. Would you mind? I think you must be waiting for one of the other doctors. So that was a big surprise when she said, I am Mrs. Jones. And then the next thing, she was cross and angry with me because she explained that I'd been prescribing her medication for her diabetes for over 10 years, and that she now had lost all this weight, her blood sugar was normal, and she'd been off the drugs for months. And she said, well, why haven't you helped me do this? You're my doctor. And also, why did you never, ever mention the fact that bread digests down into sugar, that really bread and breakfast cereals and potatoes is sugar? And so for somebody with type 2 diabetes, they shouldn't be having that either. And if you'd explained that to me, I wouldn't have needed to take this medication for 10 years. And then the final thing was she wondered whether I'd got my exams in basic biology. So I was dead scared because she was an angry woman making a very good point. And she changed my life because when I thought about this, I realized I'd just started using medications and not really, I wasn't really thinking about why are my patients ill? And when I started doing that, we started getting amazing results through 
cutting carbohydrates, which are sugar when the digestion gets going. So I became low carb GP because I was the first one on Twitter, I expect, to cash in on low carb GP. But my enthusiasm ever since, I have loved medicine. I've had a surgery this afternoon. You know, I'm just seeing the most amazing cases. I've seen a young man this afternoon and he's lost 11 stone, 11 stone. And he was referred to the sleep apnea clinic two years ago. He certainly doesn't need it now. So I'm seeing in every clinic the most amazing people achieving good health. And by good health, I don't mean taking medication. I mean genuinely good health. I'm a lot older, but I'm still in there. I never did retire. So that's my answer. Oh, that's wonderful. And I know as one of your ways you help kind of illustrate what the dangers of sugar is, you've created these sugar infographics. What was the inspiration behind them? And how have patients and colleagues received them? Yeah. So when I became interested in carbohydrates and how much sugar they digest down into, I discovered that the science for this had been done for years, and it's called the glycemic index, as in the low GI diet. So the glycemic index, what it's doing, it is predicting how much various carbohydrate foods will affect your blood sugar by, because carbohydrates vary in how sugary they are. And so the single fact that amazed me was that the glycemic index of brown bread or cornflakes is higher than table sugar itself. I couldn't believe that. So I became interested and indeed obsessed with the glycemic index. And then what I realized was, so the glycemic index uh, doesn't account for the water content of food. So that it gives a high glycemic index for watermelon, but watermelon's mainly water. So you actually need to move on the next step, which is a glycemic load. So it's all, the viewers are getting bored already, I can tell. So we were talking about glycemic load, and I realized the patients and all the doctors and everybody I knew was glazing over when I started talking about glycemic load. And yet it was such a useful concept. And the reason the patients and doctors were glazing over was the glycemic load gives you an equivalent in grams of glucose for any particular portion of food. So 150 grams of rice, it will tell you how many grams of glucose is that equivalent to. But it has a problem. My patients don't think in grams at all. They think in pounds and ounces. So when I was talking grams, it meant nothing to them. The second problem was that really nobody here in the UK uses glucose as a substance. So they're quite unfamiliar with glucose. So I had two problems. Patients didn't understand grams and they didn't understand glucose. So I suddenly had a, a eureka moment, really, which was, well, could we redo the sums in terms of something my patients do understand? And they, we all understand teaspoons of sugar. So I got together with an expert on the glycemic index and glycemic load, and we redid the calculations for 800 foods. And now I can tell you and the viewers that 150 grams of boiled rice is roughly equivalent to 10 teaspoons of sugar. A small portion of cornflakes without milk and without sugar is equivalent to eight teaspoons of sugar. And so it goes on, but you can see it helps people understand the consequences of their dietary choices. So I made the infogram showing it all in terms of teaspoons of sugar, and they've gone all over the world. Uh, they've now been um, translated, I think it's 14 different languages, and there's more all the time. So I'm pretty confident that millions of people now have seen the teaspoons of sugar. I've been very careful not to copyright it, so anybody can nick my idea and replicate it. And there'll be no problem because I have no intention of making money out of it. It helps people understand the consequences of carbohydrate foods. So that's the teaspoons of sugar. What fun it's been. It's such a perfect visual illustration to make it so simple and so that anyone can understand it. And yes. I definitely have nicked it and shared it with my own clients Good. just for their own reference as yes. well. Just for the listeners, if anybody wants to see the teaspoons of sugar, I don't know whether you're going to connect with anything, but all you need to do is Google Unwin and PHC in capitals and sugar infographics, and that will take you to the charity, my favorite charity, the Public Health Collaboration, and the sugar infographics are there in all 14 languages. Download them, nick them. I'm happy. Awesome. And we'll make sure that we link that as well in the show notes so everyone can. We know you're also hosting a workshop soon to educate healthcare professionals on type 2 diabetes drug-free remission. 
Are these workshops being well received? Uh, very. I, yeah, I've been really busy now. I get asked at least once a day to do something now, at least once a day. So I think this will help. So at the beginning, I was lonely, just me, OCAB GP, the only one. And I've done an e-learning module for the British Royal College of General Practitioners. So this is a half hour e-learning module for doctors. And that's been downloaded over 2,000 times. So I think it's the most successful e-learning module the college has done. Really, I know hundreds and hundreds of doctors are doing this now, probably thousands. In the beginning, it was very badly received. And I was shouted at. I got hate mail, all sorts of weird. In fact, I was mystified as to why people were so angry with me. Because from my point of view, patients were doing really well, coming off medication and People would literally stand up and say what I was doing was irresponsible. They'd end up with vitamin deficiencies and all sorts of things. All of that has died away now because it is steadily becoming more mainstream. And we've published, I think I've published about 12 peer-reviewed papers now. I've got lots of stuff published. So there's progress, but a lot of work still to do. And I, I think a lot of that is because the paradigm of medicine is about what tests should I do? Then when I've done the test, what drug do I need to give you to sort what I've just discovered? so that doctors are addicted, because this is about addiction. We're a bit addicted to the paradigm of get you out and prescribe. And doctors struggle to believe that patients are capable of behavior change. I did. I was tired, exhausted, fed up. And I, I don't know what was wrong with me, but I didn't believe that people could make significant behavior change. And now I know in their hundreds, in their thousands, they're doing that because they're not stupid. And I think I was patronizing. Uh, but other doctors uh, are, as I were, overtired, rather wedded to the idea of a pill for every ill. And there are some, you know, you need antibiotics for pneumonia. There's no debate. There's plenty of other illnesses like high blood pressure, like diabetes, like fatty liver, where behavior change is absolutely key. So it, it is spreading much work to do, but I feel it's not going to go back in the box. I'm confident that even, even if I'm run over tomorrow, this is a train going somewhere. Yeah. I mean, right. It's like once we know, we can't unknow it. And it's just, Absolutely. here we go. So what do you think it will take for food as medicine to become an accepted practice in your field and not seen as a fringe way of treating things like type 2 diabetes? I think social media, this is a grassroots revolution that would have been quite impossible 20 years ago, 30 years ago. What is happening is all sorts of intelligent people are researching, looking up, and then they're thinking, well, maybe that would work for me, and they're trying. And, you know, when it comes to evidence-based medicine, there is absolutely nothing to equal trying something and seeing for yourself how you feel and how your life has changed. So it's changed my life, and it doesn't matter what papers I read or what you, either of you, tell me, I won't go back to eating sugar and bread because I know I don't feel as well. And that kind of evidence, goodness me, that is powerful for individuals. And as I say, this is a grassroots revolution. And just as I learned from one of my patients, lots of clinicians are learning from their patients who look better. And then when you do the blood work, heavens, you know, the blood lipids are better, the renal function's better, the liver function is better, the hemoglobin A1C, the diabetes is better, and the patient looks fabulous. So it's a bit difficult to argue with that if you keep seeing it. And I, I think that's what's opening this grassroots revolutions. First of all, I think it's permeating primary care because they have a continuity of, of care with their patients and a closer relationship. But it's also beginning to break through into secondary care in the specialists now who are far less prickly about this and say, well, if it works for you, good. So that's how I think some of the academics are quite late to the party. Because I think being a clinician is marvelous because you've got that grounding of watching what happens with patients. Whereas if you're just in a research facility, maybe you're not exposed to quite as much reality as I am in every surgery. So great progress. I think it will be continued by social media, grassroots information. So for me, Twitter has been amazing. And I know other people are busy on Instagram and so on. And then now Zoom is working. So I'm using, we're using social media again to run conferences and educate anybody that's interested. 
Yeah. And I think you're so right. Cause you know, when we're on the front lines, we get to see these amazing changes that are happening with the individuals that we get to work with. I'm wondering in this practice of using food as medicine and working with the patients that you work with, how does food addiction factor into this? And have you seen this occur with some individuals trying to just change their food? And it's a lot harder than they imagined it would be. Okay, I really have. So one of the things I try and cultivate is a state of curiosity so that instead of seeing people or patients as a problem, which has a negative connotation, Jen, my wife, psychologist, clever woman, has taught me to try and see people as a puzzle and try and be curious and wonder why it is. So I've tried to bring this attitude of being curious to patients who are not doing well. And I'm inexorably trying to get the results in my practice better. So you can learn from your mistakes or are they mistakes? So I've been, I was really looking at people who did well and then didn't people who lost weight and then they gained weight, what was happening. And when we look at those people, I suddenly saw they had behaviors that I'd seen before because they were doing something which they knew was wrong and which they knew would impact upon their health. And sometimes they weren't completely honest about the quantities they were consuming. And this to me was, I'd seen it all before. I'd seen it with drugs and alcohol. And I realized, or Jen helped me see, that this model of addiction fitted the behavior I was seeing. These were not stupid people. They were very, sometimes very successful, clever people. And yet they were doing something that I just couldn't understand when I'd said sugar is poison and they're going back and then their blood sugars are sky high and they were coming to harm. So addiction, doing something you know is wrong, but you can't stop yourself, fitted this far more clearly. And it was such a relief. I remember one lady bursting into tears. So this was a lady who I'd known for at least 30 years and her weight had bounced about during all that time. And I said to her one day, I said, I just wonder, looking at all these years you've struggled with your weight, could food addiction have anything to do with your problem? And to my amazement, she burst into tears and she said, it's bread. I've never told anybody in all my life because you'd think I'm a nutter, but it's bread. I can't control myself. I'm eating huge amounts of bread. And I actually find that bread is quite a common problem. When you look for it, you find all sorts of people go, yes, of course, I can't control myself. Somebody this afternoon told me it was cornflakes. And they said to me, well, I don't put the cornflakes in a bowl. I have a mixing bowl because I need so many. And it'll be if I'm sad or whatever. So this is really important. And it impacts majorly on my ability to help people. And so really, we need to roll up our sleeves and help. And the results can be amazing. So I'm showing off again. Did I mention the person with lost 11 stones? I've seen somebody today, and he's lost 11 stone in weight. So and that was basically a food addiction problem. So he's the greatest weight loss that we've ever had in the practice. And I'm so, so terribly proud. And that's been done through this new understanding that I have of food addiction as a problem. I think that story is amazing and you should be proud because my belief as a, I'm a dual licensed mental health and addiction counselor in the U S and one of the biggest referrals agencies that I have in my area is the local hospital and clinics. And so many medical professionals get patients that just can't get their type two diabetes numbers down or their blood pressure down or all these things. And then they start asking questions and it they're right. It's revealed it's alcohol or it's sugar or it's the soda or it's the whatever. And they panic and they're like, well, off you go to an addiction counselor, right? Like they panic, but it sounds like you're, like you said, rolling up your sleeves and digging in. And so I'm wondering in your practice, how do you help patients with metabolic dysfunction and food addiction? Do you educate them? Do you refer them out? Like, how did you help this gentleman? Okay. I don't refer them anywhere. That young person actually came as he had sleep apnea. So he, he thought he needed help to breathe overnight and he wanted to be referred to a sleep apnea clinic and he's under 30. And what a tragedy if that's the rest of his life. And I said, no, we can do something about this. And that illustrates my first point, giving hope. So if somebody says to you, actually, I've seen worse, I think I can help you. If you're prepared to work with me, I believe we can achieve something together. 
That's a very hopeful statement. And I'm saying that in every clinic I do. Nobody's forced to work with me, but I give them the alternative. I say, I believe that I can help your breathing, your weight, your diabetes, your fatty liver, your blood pressure. If you're interested in, in working with me, is that, you know, we could start lifelong medication today or refer you for the sleep apnea clinic. Or are you interested in working with me? Question and leave a gap. And I discover that if you do that, just about nobody refuses and they're interested. And then we, you know, I also like the idea of alternative futures, which future each of us has many different futures, don't we? Based on the choices that we make, which future are you going to pick? So sometimes, again, I'll have used that this afternoon. I said to somebody the first time they'd come to see me, you know, you have a range of futures. I'm concerned because of your weight and the poor diabetic control, but I think I can help you. But actually, it's which future are you going to pick? Will you work with me? So that this is really the idea of incorporating hope into clinical medicine rather than threatening you. And also, I think a lot of clinicians are far too specific, far too early. So we can't resist telling people what to do, can't resist it. And that's before they've even signed up, if you know what I mean, for the course. So it, first of all, it's hope. Then it's weight loss would help. And I think the next thing for me is explaining physiology, the physiology of sugar, of insulin, of liver function, of central obesity to my patients in a way they can understand. So way before I've given advice, I'm giving useful, relevant information so that then when they make the decision, they're in a much stronger position to do so. And the decisions they make are more sincere rather than just, yes, doctor, you know, I know I need to lose weight. They know what they're saying yes to and they believe in it. And nearly always they take action. It's very rarely that I'm disappointed. Some of the things we're talking about with food addiction, many people can do it for a while. What's different is I think people need ongoing support. It's a long journey. It's not over in a week or a month. It, that's a journey for years and does require support, I think, and understanding. So you have this in your professional life, but we know you've also experienced a level of food addiction in your personal life by living with someone who had sugar addiction and she wasn't aware of it. So can you tell us a little bit about what that was like as the spouse and partner yeah. of someone living with this disease? It's actually, I'm glad to talk about this because it's almost like therapy, isn't it? It's quite difficult. Because we all love our partners, and if you love them, it's really hard to watch while they do something that is destructive. And so Jen and I go back a very, very long way. We've known each other for a long, long time. And I've seen Jen small and big and every size in between. Her weight has bounced about so much. But then, obviously, when we got married, you get to know each other even better. And I saw there were patterns there that, that worried me. So she'd say, I'm really worried about my weight. But weirdly, her response to that would be to start making tray bakes and cooking and, and the fridge would be full of all sorts of stuff. And I, I really couldn't understand if you're going to start the diet on Monday, why are we making tray bakes on Sunday? And then on Monday, she didn't actually do it. So we did have some arguments because I'm saying, well, like, don't make that tray bake because I don't want it. And then Jen would become defensive and angry. We were talking about this this morning and she said she wasn't angry, but I disagree. She was. She was angry, defensive, I'd say. And I actually learned that I could not help her. And that's really, really hard that my advice did not help Jen. And she was often unhappy. I began to recognize something else in the cycle. So she would be revving up to a diet, maybe for months. And in the revving up period, she easily put on a stone while she didn't. So um, she seemed to panic at the idea of not eating whatever it was, and she'd put on weight. But once she was on the diet, she was so much happier because she had a sense of control. And I looked forward to her finally getting on the bloody diet because then she was a happier woman and easier to live with. And so it's very frustrating for people to watch that. Because you think, well, why do I didn't understand why did she not just stop it? And of course, I'd missed that addiction really, really hard. And I've come across this in clinical practice where people put on weight while they are revving up. The idea of giving up bread makes them feel anxious. 
because of course that's partly how they've coped and you know you're going to take that away so it was really quite difficult over the years at times not all the time it was great when she was on a diet and losing weight because then she was much happier and had that sense of control but i really disliked the revving up before because she didn't seem happy to me and I, it seemed so simple just stop it and she couldn't do that and of course again in clinical practice it's exactly the same as the relatives of somebody with an alcohol problem i'm always being brought a couple will come in and with the person with an alcohol problem or whatever and the other one wants me to sort of beat up the alcoholic to say stop or you'll die and we all have to understand that it has to come from within and your mind has to be open to giving this up and it isn't always the right time in your life and this applies to giving up cigarettes giving up alcohol giving up bread or sugar so now i i say to people well i'm giving you the model because i think that's your problem and sooner or later if you wish to progress we need to nail this please come to me when you're ready and some people come back years later and certainly a relative can't force you and it just you become secretive what that does relatives watching and saying do you really need that that causes secret eating which is far more common than ever i had known a lot of secret eating and so for me the corollaries with alcohol problems cigarette smoking and drugs are very close really with food addiction it presents in a very very similar way very difficult for the person concerned because of course as the lady said the bread lady she said i always thought i was probably mad that's quite a relief to find you're not mad but i know what it is and then it's very difficult for families as well because it seems to them so simple jen says it's so simple but it's not easy so then how now that she's in recovery how do you help support her as a partner in her recovery how is life different now for you both well i think the first thing is you know i love her and she's happy great so i'm delighted her weight is so stable it might go up a couple of pounds not stones so that's good she was always needing a complete new wardrobe because she'd throw out all the fat clothes buy the thin clothes and then we'd have to go around the cycle again and she'd say i have nothing to wear so she's it's the stability and i think her mind is freer and she's just happy probably the happiest i've ever known her and in in control it contrasts really well i've learned that i have to be flexible with my own eating so there was a period of time when eating out was a bit difficult she'd rather not go out for dinner or with friends or to a restaurant and i found that quite difficult because she'd say oh couldn't we just go for coffee or do we have to because i'm just getting on top and that could derail me so it requires understanding that that person is trying quite hard and if they ask you would you mind they're putting it in that polite way but maybe for them it's quite serious and you should listen and try and be flexible and that's what i've tried to do so we and other people for a while thought our eating was very bonkers but actually i've had terrific health benefits myself because jen was part of the beginning of this and my diet is vastly better than it used to be because i i was a bit biscuit addicted and you know and it we now in a way that suits both of us food that we enjoy and my basic health is a lot better so i've actually learned lots i'm very grateful to jen she's taught me a lot and if she hadn't had the addiction i would not have achieved so i've done what have i got i've got over 100 patients now in drug free type 2 diabetes remission i could never have achieved that without the insights that jen has supplied personally psychologists yeah so i'm just wondering the lady that came to your clinic who was angry and said why have you put me on these medications all these years and not told me about the sugar and then your personal experience with in living in the same household with jen like did those timelines overlap at all yes they did of course jen had been bouncing about with her weight all the time i'd ever known her so for our wedding she just dipped you know how people it right at the bottom only lasts about one day so she wanted to look fabulous for our wedding day and she did but almost immediately she was on the way up again and i remember it caused arguments on the honeymoon even because i thought she's so happy cuz she's lost weight why can't she just stay eating like that and she was saying no it's my honeymoon i can whatever and and that was one of the first times i began to realize so i hadn't got the model of addiction there but i i was beginning to suspect and then 
the other thing that happened was Jen read a book. So I saw this patient in 2012, somewhere in the second half of 2012. At the same time as Jen read a book called Beat the Diet Trap by Dr. John Briffer. And she was reading out literally in the evening, David, you've got to listen to this and listen to this. And the pennies were dropping for her then. And it was at that time. So in 2013, we started working together jointly on patients in groups. So we were, the partners wouldn't let me do the low carb thing because they said, we're not paid to do that. Jen's response was, right, well, we'll do it for free. We don't need to be paid. This is what we should be doing. So Jen came and she's still doing it now. She works for free for the practice because she believes in it. So this was all happening in 2013, where Jen and I started running groups together. And we were really adding the psychology that Jen knew, the psychology of hope. And then after a little while around addiction to what I knew about physiology. And also I knew my patients really, really well. And we were getting the most amazing results. Quite, In fact, the results were so amazing. I thought people are bound to think I'm a cheat or a fraud, which is why from the very beginning, I've always been so careful not to accept money because people would think I falsified the results. I just didn't know people could do that well. If you unite an understanding of behavior change with physiology, so powerful. Oh, and hope, of course. I just can't even imagine what that must be like being this, I mean, kind of being the bridge. You're this physician trying to help your patients after you've had this woman come in and say all these things and, and kind of turn the light bulb on for you. Meanwhile, your wife is reading this book and you're watching her, like her aha is happening. Yes. And then you guys come together. I mean, can you kind of enlighten us? Like, what was that like for you? Intensely exciting because I knew I really knew that we'd stumbled across something so important because I'd never seen results like them. If you, you know, bear in mind, I'd never seen drug-free type 2 diabetes remission in 25 years of clinical medicine. I didn't know it existed. And I was seeing that and fatty liver and things reversing every single day, every day, every clinic. I had no idea. It's like it was initially, I thought this is like being a wizard. This is the art of medicine, like a wizard. People thanking me it was weird, 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 exciting. I was often, I got overexcited. I was often awake at four in the morning. And I felt that we had an ethical imperative that this, you can't be a doctor and not wish to spread the word. It's really, really important that other people understand because on the dark side is all the suffering that I'm now aware of. I mean, I knew it was there before, but now I see it as unnecessary suffering. So previously, I was literally writing death certificates on people who died who shouldn't have done. And then your world, every shopping trip, you know, you see people and you think you could be so beautiful, you could be so different. You look in the trolley and and you think this is such a tragedy. And so I became obsessed really with this need to help people understand and also help my colleagues to understand. And of course, people weren't always grateful. So that, yeah. And then I go to public meetings and I do speeches and get shouted at because the world wasn't very receptive, really, to the idea of a low-carb approach to giving up carbs altogether. And then, so it was a time of peaks and troughs because I was excited. It was amazing. And then I'd have very significant setbacks or receive things in the post that upset me. And I was so mystified as to why some healthcare professionals were angry. Why were they angry at what I was doing? when I got all these grateful patients. So I was a very odd time, particularly for somebody of 55, who you tend to think your best days are behind you. And suddenly we seem to be at the cutting edge of something very, very exciting. And we were too, we were. I think it's so important for our audience to get to hear your side of the story, right? We so often have people on who do identify with food as food addicts in some way, but we have yet to have a partner of somebody. And so I just appreciate you sharing your perspective of what that was like with, you know, from your medical perspective, from your husband perspective, you know, I think it's important that people know this isn't always pretty, but it also isn't always bleak. Well, let me, it's a bit like dealing with teenagers. So here, here's the thing. Very often with a teenager, you can't make something better, but you can make it worse. Do you know what I mean? 
you can, with a teenager, you can make it worse by saying something when it might be better to say nothing. And so I think that's it. If you have a partner with an addiction problem, knowing when to keep silent. So if they're hurting and they feel guilty anyway, lecturing them is a selfish act. And it's easy to give into it because you're, I was hurting as well. And I love Jen and I couldn't bear to see her. And I learned that I was just making it worse because if I lectured her, then she felt inadequate. I was probably forcing her to secret eating and it, it was counterproductive. So it's really such a fine art to offer support and understanding without too much judgment. The other thing I would say to people is don't collude. You can go too far in the helping, and that is saying something is all right that isn't all right. So that, you know, I would never say to Jen, it's fine to have sugar, or, you know, it's fine. It isn't. So I would never lie. I have to be scrupulous because she knew my opinions. So I think that's the fine line. Don't collude, don't criticize, and do support. And you may have something. So I learned it was better to wait maybe a whole month. So I wouldn't say anything. And then I'd say, I'd been meaning to say this for about a month. And so then she'd know that this was something big's coming. And then I might say and see how that went. But don't just on the spur of the moment when you are annoyed that they've eaten the whatever, you've just, I found, I used to find jars of, um, what was it, peanut butter. And I thought, why is this here? Why are we buying it? Because I hate it. Why is it in the cupboard? So don't sound off about the peanut butter. So that's, you know, and good luck to, absolutely good luck to everybody. And it's a journey and it's maybe a long one. Yeah. Well, so kind of speaking about teenagers, and I know your children are no longer, no longer teenagers. And the thing is, we know chronic disease affects everyone in the family, but so does, right? Addiction, just like that chronic disease and recovery, whether it be from cancer or diabetes, addiction, whatever. Is it safe to say that's true for your family? I mean, I recently started following your son on social media. He just opened a butcher shop and I wish yeah. that I was in the UK because I would, I would shop there. So do your children and grandchildren eat low carb, avoid processed foods? You know, what do they think yeah. about you and Jen and everything you two have been up to? Yeah. Give us the, okay. the well, details. That's a, yeah. That's a story. So in the beginning, of course, they assumed that Jen and I were utterly bonkers and they'd seen Jen go through loads of diets. So what we actually did at the beginning was a sort of, I joined Jen in low carb, but we had oven chips and bags of rice and all the rest of it for the children who were living with us at the time. And then gradually, one by one, we sort of led by example. And all, so I have three children and all three of my children are mainly keto and definitely low carb now. And they dropped off one by one where they might want to look good for the opposite sex or yeah, there were various reasons that over the years, all three of them became low carb and then noticed the various things that all the rest of us noticed. And that made family life easier. Then my mother, who has type 2 diabetes, we managed to get her off metformin and she lost weight and started eating less bread. And I think it's true to say my sister now is reasonably low carb. And then my daughter started having children and she's bringing up all four of her children as keto and they are the healthiest kids you would ever see. So they come, we had them for a barbecue last night and they never eat bread ever, ever, ever. And they look fabulous. They really, really do. The grandchildren are very surprised if I appear on television or Jen, they think it's weird that anybody out there in the world would be interested. So they just say, it's weird or I appear in the paper or whatever. So they think it's weird because they relate to me as grandpa or papa, not as that person. And But they now, particularly the older ones, can see that people have children, have different amounts of health, and that they're interested in health, and they know that's important. And one of my granddaughters is badly gluten intolerant, and she ends up with the most terrible rash and feeling ill. So if she has gluten, she's ill in bed for days. And so she, in a way, she's in no doubt about what we do. The challenge for them, of course, is the obesogenic environment that we all live in. And how do you handle friends who want you to come to a party and feed you the wrong stuff? So they're, they're meeting that at a very young age, whereas Jen and I met it in our 50s. But basically now, we all our friends are low carb. We belong to a low carb supper club. Most of the neighbors, the farmers in the village, the plumber, the electrician, we've infected everybody we know with the low carb virus quite successfully. Yes, it must be infectious, definitely. 
So I imagine you must also see some children in your practice. And how do you help parents who are working or have these children and they don't have this supportive environment, but they also live in a world where we're constantly marketed to the birthday parties, the all the things that are sugar related. How do you work with those parents to help their children? I think that's an international crisis, really, that we need to address. I mean, the saddest thing is so many people go low carb, but they say, oh, but, you know, I buy biscuits for the children because they're only young. And yet our children are our most precious, precious thing. And I'm trying to help adults focus in on the love for their children and that the idea of rewarding children with chocolate is just setting up addiction for the future. So I'm really trying to explain that in my medical model is what children love is attention. They really love one-to-one. They love being creative. They love taking exercise. Jen has a really good thing. She calls them alpha and beta pleasures. So alpha pleasures are the pleasure you have walking in the countryside or drawing or creating. And beta pleasures are you just bought yourself a donut. And I think it's very useful to help people in general discern between those alpha and beta and try for the alpha pleasures and those including in your parenting. But I have loads of sympathy because people are are working hard. Some of them are very short of money. And I find it easier to work with older people because they have a bit more time and very often they have a bit more money. Young people, some of them are very busy and very short of cash. So I've lots of sympathy, but still I think we can use the love that people have for their children to good because they want to be good parents. So I try and use that in clinical practice, but without pressure, because parents are super, super sensitive to an idea that I'm critical of their parenting. So I'm looking for opportunities. And then one or two practical hints. I find if you say to kids, how do you feel about bacon and eggs for breakfast? They go, wow, you know, that would be great. So that's an easy win if mum has got the time to do bacon and eggs. But really, how long does that take? It's not very long, is it? And the other thing is, I think maybe children don't get enough protein and protein, the building block of life, the building block of muscle, and that we should be majoring for children on protein rather than at the moment we're majoring on fruit all the time, which is very sugary. And actually, I think thinking about protein or giving protein a lot more emphasis in the nutrition of children can be quite helpful, although there are problems with expense. But then again, mince isn't expensive. Eggs are very good value. So that's a few thoughts, but it ever so difficult. And that is, a, would say, an international priority to do something about our children's health, because we're finding now there are 1,600 children with diabetes in the UK. There shouldn't be one. 1,600 children with type 2 diabetes, I should say. Type 1, you can't help, but type 2 is nearly always what you've eaten. And if that's happening to children, I worry about their future. Yeah. So today is the first day of school for my children. And of course it's the lunch menu says it's pizza and this, that, and the other thing. And my daughter's like, I'm taking lunch with me. So, you know, we're like scrambling, like, it's always like meat, meat has to be in every single meal. Right. So we're like, Oh no, we weren't prepared. What kind of meat? And we found meat, you know, whatever, but she's like, I need to have meat mom. Like, so my kids are starting to get it too, where it's like this protein thing. I think you're onto something. They're just, every meal needs to have some good protein to it because their little brains and that sugar, even if it's from fruit, they're like crazy. And then they're melting down and it makes for a miserable day. I mean, yeah. And also to build on that as well is healthy fats because your brain is mainly, the brain is actually mainly fat. And so the sources of those fat, that is also important and it doesn't include vegetable oil and trans fats. It really, really doesn't. And so I think, you know, maybe groups of parents could politely do what they can with schools to say, you know, we love our children. We believe in good nutrition and everybody who's going to disagree with good nutrition. And then if you could perhaps say, you know, protein is a building block, healthy, the vitamins A, D, E, and K only come in fat and so on and educate whoever's in charge in the schools. So there are so many projects that any of us can get involved in. Yeah, I was going to say, let me just put that on my to-do list for 2023 because yeah, I've already got 2022 out. filled up. <laughs> yeah. Sorting yeah. out the whole of education, if you wouldn't yeah. mind. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, that's, that's for me. What, what are my priorities all the time? 
every day I'm deciding with the amount of energy I have in any particular day, what is time well spent? Yeah. And how do we lead a balanced life without becoming actually bonkers? So all of us have to do something else other than the... Somebody said to me once, be careful how long you spend looking into the abyss or it will claim you. And I think that's true. You know, if I spent all my time thinking about children and weight problems, I could just quietly go mad. You need to have hope and balance. Um, being a clinician helps with that, but it's quite difficult if you're not a clinician because you can just think about this the whole time and it's not always a cheerful thought. So speaking of time and passion projects and all of that, what is next for you? I think obviously the international scene is opening up again. And so I'll do a, start a bit of globe trotting and trying to get the message out there with the public speaking. That's important. So I've got two papers, important papers, read them, people. My papers, I always, the Public Health Collaboration, the charity I help set up, pays for my papers to be open access. So anybody in the public can read them and the diet sheets are in them. And coming out in September is the official launch of my renal function paper, which is I looked at the renal function of all my patients who went low carb. And to my amazement, instead of deteriorating, because these were people with type 2 diabetes, the kidney function improved, which is amazing. These were older people with diabetes. Their kidney function should have been dropping year on year. And after two and a half years, they had significant improvement. So that paper is coming out officially September 1st and will be open access. So you could Google Unwin kidney function low carb. That'll probably get you that. And then there's another exciting thing coming out next week where I partnered or several of us partnered with the British Dietetics, the BDA, the British Dietetics Association, and the BDA commissioned a review of type 2 diabetes remission and how it's to be done. And the review is very pro-low carb. And this is, I would say, a historic thing. There are five senior dietitians and five senior clinicians, and the review is very nice about low carb. And if I'd known that I would have been a co-author in that paper in 2012, I'd have been so surprised. And that's coming out really, really soon. And I think that's a beacon of hope where dietitians and clinicians are working together and really focusing on what works and how can we help. And that's a refreshing. It's so good. And I'm so grateful to the dietitians involved who agreed to look at the evidence with me. And I'm grateful for the BDA. It's going to be published in their own journal. The abstract has already been published, but the full thing comes out next week. So papers, I'm relentlessly pursuing what helps patients. And so I've got some thoughts about how it is that we get such good results. I'm really curious, why is it that at Norwood Avenue, 50% of everybody that goes low carb achieves type 2 diabetes remission and other practices don't have a single one? What is the recipe and can I distill this recipe down and can I help other doctors use it? Because the doc COVID, we're all exhausted. So that's another paper, a baby paper in my head, but nowhere else that's going to come out. And then, of course, I'm also fascinated by nature. So I run, I'm the senior trustee of a whole lot of bird reserves. So we've just bought two more reserves and I'll be developing land along the lines of regenerative agriculture. So interesting, you know, using sheep, using wildflowers all that kind of thing. And that keeps me sane. And so, yes, I love working on the land. I've got a little tractor. I'm very happy going up and down, cutting the grass, doing whatever. So the two more reserves are coming online in the next year. And I can't wait to see what I can achieve in the future. So that's all, all good stuff. Yeah, that sounds like exciting times. And it seems like you have found your balance on the land project as well. So that's so fantastic. Yes, it is. I think it's really important. So we have a signature question, and it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar, carbs, processed food, what would it be? It would be more basic than that. And it's, I wish I had, as a young man, thought far more about the true cause of illness. Let me illustrate this with type 2 diabetes. So uh, routinely, I'd give metformin for type 2 diabetes. But what has metformin got to do with the cause of type 2 diabetes? Do we have a metformin gland that's packed up and this is metformin replacement? That would make sense. 
really metformin doesn't make much sense because it's difficult to set within the framework of why is my patient ill? Why has my patient got fatty liver? Why has my patient got high blood pressure? Why has my patient got type 2 diabetes? And, you know, I'm over 60 now. And if only I had seen all this, you know, say if I was 30, I could have achieved more because we all have our allotted time. And mine is plainly, we're coming towards the end of what I can achieve. But I wish I'd started thinking about properly the true cause of illness. And I think I could have had a lot of fun. But I'm having, you know, I'm not a great one for wishing a different past. I'm having now loads of fun. I'm working. I'm just about the oldest GP in the area still working. So I'm happy. I'm very, in fact, I'm very happy. I have a great life, as you say, with balance. And at times, what I feel like a magician. When I've seen that guy today, lost 11 stone, what a privilege. He's looked so happy, so handsome. His life has transformed. And, you know, what sort of a doctor do you want to be? One who transforms people's life, one who finds the potential in the people I meet. That's worth a great deal. That's the end of that, I think. Oh, so beautiful and so inspiring. I loved it. Amazing answer. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Unwin. We so appreciate it. Clarissa and I have a working relationship with Jen, and we always feel like we get these little bits and pieces and glimpses to you, but it was just, it's just so different having you here and getting to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. And You've got another piece of the jigsaw now because, I mean, Jen is such a clever, slightly understated person and what a privilege to work with her to the joint project has been amazing. And that was Jen's idea. She has a lot of good ideas. I've learned to listen to her very carefully. That was her idea. Why don't we do one last joint project and what fun it's been? That's the end. Thank you, everybody. For If you're still listening at the end, amazing that you can be bothered to listen. I'm always surprised. I don't listen to podcasts, so I'm amazed that people do, but I hear that people do. So well done if you've listened to the end. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.